Kids are dismissed. Thank you, Jenna. No kids? No kids. It's fair day. You're stuck here with us, huh? What'd you think about the all-girl quartet in Troy, though, huh? Pretty good. That was really good. You did a great job. So, start the CD. And here we go. I noticed that my framing crew is all here in attendance. We have... Yes, we're going to get to that in a minute. We have one half of the flying Lorenzo's here today. And he's still alive, and it's good to see you. Except, did you bring your trumpet? Because how great thou art, how great thou art, did not have a trumpet, did it? How can you play that song with no trumpet? I don't think it's possible. And I look around, I see three, maybe three and a half trumpet players. You should have had that. And uh, Michael, Adrian, Xavier. We have most of the framing crew. We should frame something. We should shut down church and build something. Bill told the door story at the offertory, and you weren't here to hear. Now, Bill, I don't know if you heard that story, but uh, it's, it's great. We, we did not believe we were right. Gosh, I make that mistake a lot. Anyway. Okay, here we go. September 5th, 2010, lecture discussion number 13. This is number 13 for those of you who follow on the Internet. On the book of Romans, and I realized that I did not complete, finally or fully complete, my review of our little mid-quarter exam last Sunday. There are many of you who wish to fight with me, and I want you to fight. It's very important, because I want you to fight over this. came up a lot. Uh, in fact, I got it all the way to work, and I got it most of the way uh, Sunday, uh, discussing whether or not circumcision should be death, or should it be grace by, or salvation by grace alone. It is the sign of one of those two. And, of course, that's a great discussion. And I was going to do that today, but then everybody told me they weren't going to be here. And so I didn't want, it to, uh, I didn't want people to miss out on the give and take that's very, very important about this. And, and so I, I know I have many aspects to cover, but I saw, okay, today would be September the 5th. Lots of people would be missing. And, um, and I decided to postpone that give and take argument thing that I think is so important. And so I didn't even bring the test today. I thought I would move on to uh, uh, 2 Samuel 21 today because that's something that most people have heard. And uh, so those of you who have come today expecting uh, to discuss the test, that will do next week when hopefully more people are back. Um, And if you're wondering why I did that, those of you who came today specifically for that, I apologize, but as you know... As you know, circumcision is the sign of which covenant? It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And if it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and you say circumcision is a symbol of death, then you are on the position that says that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is death. That's where you have to go. And that, by the way, is, an, is a wonderful discussion and I fully intend for you to have it. And I know many of you think I'm wrong. And I might be. I might be. But I do have a good fight. So, next week, or maybe the week after, as soon as I'm confident that most of the people who took the exam. Yes, this is a church that gives exams. I know that's really strange, isn't it? But it seems to be working quite well because we've only driven off half of the congregation so far since we gave the test. So, here we go. 
We're going to go to 2 Samuel 21, and as you know, that may divert us to David's three choices, which is uh, 1 Chronicles 24 and 2 Samuel 24. Once we get into 2 Samuel 21, which is essentially Rizpah. And I don't think I'm going to get to 2 Samuel 21 today. I think I'm going to pretty much be in Joshua 9. But you need to know that 2 Samuel 21 is coming. The hanging of Saul's, um, essentially his uh, um, offspring, you will, not quite. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But it's the hanging of the seven because of the famine, because of Saul's killing of the Gibeonites, which takes us all the way back to Joshua 9, which ultimately takes us to Genesis 34. I like to call it a three-act play. I'll do that here uh, more but uh, today, but it's more than a three-act play. Whoa! There we go. That scared even me. I have to have medicine now. But anyway, as I said, we're going to go in towards Rizpah and David's three choices, the consequences of the census that David had without atonement. David's great sin of 2 Samuel 24, David's willful rebellion, David's failure to resist the temptation of Satan, which is how it's described in 1 Chronicles 21. Do you see how it fits in our discussion now? Because we were backwards, weren't we, to the temptation of Adam and the three choices of Adam. Bill came up, Bill Fast came up uh, after the uh, Adam Dilemma lecture of August 22 and correctly connected David's three choices of famine enemies or plague to Adam's three choices of let the woman die alone, let her die or die in her place or join her in sin. That correlation exists. So whenever you study Adam, you end up studying David. You'd expect that. All of that's on the docket today, and we're not going to get to all of it, but all of it is on the docket along with the Gibeonites. And eventually the goal, of course, is to get everyone to successfully complete essay question number 13 from the test of a couple of weeks ago. And what's that? Do you remember? I hope you do. You may not. It's okay if you don't. But sooner or later, you're going to have to answer this question. You're going to have to connect Genesis 3.15, which is what? Adam. The dilemma of Adam. The curse. The, um, the renaming of the woman. We're going to have to connect Genesis, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We're going to have to connect Genesis 3 to Genesis 17. What's Genesis 17? The Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant has a direct reference back to Adam. And that is circumcision. That is why this death and grace alone discussion of what does circumcision symbolize is so important. Then we go to Genesis 34. What's Genesis 34? How do I get from Genesis 17 to Genesis 34? Circumcision gets me there. How did it get me there? In Genesis 17, I have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is <coughs> circumcision. And then in Genesis 34, I have circumcision used as a weapon of destruction and death. How does that get me back to Genesis 3.15? Gets me back to Genesis 3.15 because Adam named the woman the mother of all living. And then, of course, we go immediately to Exodus 4, 24 through 26. How do we get to Exodus 4, 24 through 26? What is the connection? Circumcision. What's happening in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? Moses is being held by God. This is a Christophany. This is Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. 
When I say pre-incarnate Christ, I could say I could say God. They are one and the same creator, God outside of time, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Anna's got the shroud of Turin coming up in the things today because I get really, really sick of people putting pictures of Christ on their walls, as you know, where he looks very Anglo-Saxon and he, she's going to run and go find it. I don't know if that's Christ, but nobody knows what that is. Somehow this incredible image is made on a shroud and it clearly is a crucified Jewish man from the time of the crucifixion. And it, there's a negative of it. You can you can obviously see the negative over here. If that is God, if that is the image of God's added humanity, because God adds humanity, then that's what he looked like. He's not attractive. Says so, by the way, Isaiah 53. Anyway, thank you for that. I have the circumcision that Zipporah refuses to do, and so pre-incarnate God in the flesh, Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, he calls himself Mighty God, he calls himself Everlasting Father. That is Jesus Christ, the I Am, the only one who is outside of time because he is the creator of time. He comes and he binds Moses because Zipporah refuses to do something. What does she refuse to do? Circumcise. So we leave that and we go to Joshua 9, which is where we are today. How do we get to Exodus 4, 24 through 26 to Joshua 9? We get there because of the Gibeonites. Who are who? The Hivites of what? Genesis 34. They are the descendants of the ones murdered with the symbol that is circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, and then after we lose, leave Joshua 9, we go to Rizpah, 2 Samuel 21, and the hanging of the descendants of Saul by the Gibeonites. And then we go to 2 Samuel 24, which is the census of David, and then finally back to Romans 2. And so hence this is a um, study on Romans 2. And I hope that many of you see immediately the relationship or the similarity between the situations of Adam, Moses, and David, which is why any discussion of the Abrahamic covenant, okay, here comes John with the what? With the pizza, that's right. So all you got to do is just kind of put up with a lecture, and you're going to have the pizza. That's how it works around here. Those of you who were ready to leave already, don't. John made it back. Any discussion on the Abrahamic covenant must include the Davidic covenant. Uh, We've discussed that previously, and that may not make much sense beyond the sign that is circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant and the sign that is the holy thing. Uh, Luke 1.35, Jesus Christ, uh, the virgin birth, is called the holy thing because we have no description of it that makes any sense. How does God add humanity? How does infinite God add finite humanity? But it is something that he did because of the sacrificial system, because of justice for sin, because we need new blood and new flesh. So all of that comes into play there. But that immediately brings us to the law of Moses and the naming of the woman Eve, and that's the seed of the woman. And all of that makes very little sense, but I just put a whole bunch of stuff on top of you. Mainly, I put it on the CD so that people can get that and begin to see how those things all fit together. You only got four pizzas. What are we going to feed 
the congregation, John. I don't know what we're going to do. Okay. Anyway, that might make little sense, but hopefully soon it will. You'll begin to start putting all of those pieces together. The Gibeonites and Joshua and Saul and the hanging and Rizpah and the plagues and the angel of the Lord. See, the Jews do not call. Uh, they, have, they have the Lord God and they have the angel of the Lord. And then they have the spirit of the Lord. And all three are ways of saying God. The angel of the Lord is God himself. So every time you find a place in the Bible where it says the angel of the Lord, and it'll be capitalized, that is the physical manifestation of the invisible God. And that, of course, is who? Of the three persons. That's Christ. That's correct. It's called a theophany or a Christophany or a pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. And you should start noticing that when Jesus Christ comes in the Old Testament because he did it a lot. Did he come to Abraham? Yes, he did. Did he come to Moses? He did with Zipporah, right? At Exodus 4, right? Did he come to Joshua? Yes, he did. Did he come to David? Yes, he did. Where did he come to David? He came to David at the census. Where did he come to Moses at the circumcision? Where did he come to Abraham? You can make a case for a lot, but you can definitely see it at Sodom and Gomorrah, can't you? How about Joshua? Where did he come for Joshua? He came to Joshua when he was standing in front of him as the commander. And we should expect to compare that with all the places, because immediately when you, when, you, when you look at those, those are your four covenants. And then you have Jacob's wrestling, and you have Jacob's ladder or staircase, the ascending and descending, which is a Proverbs 30, verse 4 reference. We should expect to start to see all these things connect together, and they do. And that's why I'm just dumping them on you today, because soon I will put them all together. Uh, today, uh, I knew very few people would be here and that's okay I don't blame them I don't blame you it's Alaska it's winter will be here in what 10 days so you got to do what you got to do and I hope you can catch one fish go do it it'll of course be what rotten it'll be unedible but go catch it take a picture of it now you can photoshop the picture right who's going to know Don't feed it to anybody. Don't eat it. Whatever you do, it's rotten. But get your one fish. And today's the day I knew people would be doing that. And they all told me they would. And so I was going to back up and put all of these connections together. Because just just talk about Jacob for a second. Jacob, there's a ladder or a staircase, more appropriately, where he sees angels descending and ascending. That, again, is a Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who ascends and descends? That's a God reference, by the way. But here on the ladder, on the staircase, he sees this amazing thing, and he uh, names it. He names that place, what? Bethel, house of God. We have our own Bethel. I've been there. I put in a sewer line. I did not think it was the house of God at any time I was there. Could be. But it did not reveal itself to me that way. I thought it was the house where lots of 30-30 ammunition was shot. 
because there were piles and piles and piles of it. It was extraordinary. It occurred to me that everybody that lived in Bethel was a really, really good shot. And so that made me very polite and cold. But anyway, he names it Bethel, house of God, where he sees this incredible scene, this ladder, if you will, or staircase. And then he goes to Penuel, where he wrestles, and he names that the face of God. He contends is a better thing. He's fighting to keep something is what he's doing there. And we'll get into that as well, because those are places where the angel of God, if you will, uh, all, all of those men ran into the physical manifestation of God, which, as you know, is Christ himself in the flesh. So we should notice that when Jacob or Israel is made of stench because of the circumcision that was used to murder the Gibeonites, where does he go? He goes to Bethel. That's right. What he does, because that's the house of God to him. He doesn't go where he contended didn't go to where he was trying to hang on to something. He went to where he saw the ladder. So circumcision is connected now to the ladder, and I hope you know that. Circumcision is, a, is connected because of the murder of the Hivites or the Gibeonites. And Jacob takes his people to, the, to Bethel, the house of God, as opposed to the face of God. So I just threw out a whole bunch of interconnections for you to consider, and they will resurface in the weeks to come. They probably made no sense to you at all. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely okay. Did I think that you would connect any of them without me? No, that's why I get the pizza. Okay, I don't get the pizza because I'm always up here and everybody gets there first. Look at the back row. They're the enemy. I understand why they're there. Okay. But I just dumped that on you. So here we go now to Joshua 9, the treaty with the Gibeonites. Keep in mind now, this treaty occurs after Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, comes and confronts Joshua. And Joshua does something. What does Joshua do? He removes his sandal because he's standing in a holy place. What's the obvious questions now? Who else removes sandals? Moses removes sandals because he's also where? In a holy place or in a holy ground? What's the obvious question? Is it the same holy place? Are they both in the same place? And if they are in the same place, if you decide that they are because they're both removing sandals and they're standing in a place that God declares holy, what's the obvious question? Where is this place that both Moses and Joshua removed their sandals and stood there and God came in a physical way, if you will, certainly to Joshua. And the fact that God came, or Christ came, as the angel of the Lord in a physical way, now connects you to Moses' circumcision with Zipporah, because he did it there. Now connects you to Sodom and Gomorrah, because he comes there to Abraham. Now connects you to Jacob, because he wrestles with Jacob. And comes to you as David because the angel of the Lord is the one that plagues Israel in Second uh, Samuel 24. So there you go, right? But what is this place? What happened here? Why does God call this a holy place? What's your choices? 
He's there for Moses. He's there for Joshua. If it's the same place, and there's disagreement about that, but if it is, even if it isn't, if it's two separate places, which is more likely, why does God call it holy? Make them pull their foot or their sandal off. Is it because he's there and that makes it holy? He's omnipresent. Consider that. What makes it holy? What happened there? Anyway, after the holy place sandal, after Jericho, after the accursed things are actually dedicated things. Let me explain what I'm doing now. I'm telling you the order to get you to Gibeonites. Before we can get to Gibeonites, you have to understand that Christ came and told Joshua take his sandal off because he's in a holy place. Then after that, we have what? I have the fall of Jericho. After the fall of Jericho, I have what? I have Achan steals the dedicated things and hides them. What's the obvious question? Who are they dedicated to? Well, they're clearly God's things. God says, get them out of Jericho, and they're mine. They're dedicated to me. But Achan steals them, hides them in his tent. After that, what comes? Yes, then I have the destruction of the mighty king. I have a mighty king in Ai. And then what happens? Then I have the Gibeonites. So, let me repeat it. After the holy place sandal, after Jericho, after the dedicated, separated things stolen, hidden by Achan, why did he steal them? Why did he hide them? After the garment, because i got a garment in there, after the renewing and the reading, because Joshua reads the entire scripture that he has possession of, what has he got? He's got the five books of Moses. He sits down the entire nation of Israel and he reads it to them. How long did that take? After, how does he do that without a microphone, by the way? So after that has happened, after the reading and the renewing of the covenant, we're now at the treaty with the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonite treaty is a very, very important place in Scripture because of what? Genesis 34. What happened at Genesis 34? The Gibeonites, if you will, or their their forefathers, the Hivites, they're still called Hivites, by the way, at the time of the treaty. Their forefathers are murdered by the Jewish people. They're murdered by the nation of Israel with circumcision as the tool to do so. It's called the Dinah incident. That is why we are reading Joshua 9, because we're now in Act 2. Act 1, if you wish to think of it that way, is the murder of the Gibeonites using circumcision. Okay, Act 2 is the treaty. Oops, sorry. What's Act 3 of the play of the Gibeonites? That's Rizpah, if you will. That's the hanging. What's Act 4? That's Nehemiah rebuilding the temple wall. With who? The Gibeonites. That's right. So we're at Act 2 now. And we've got to read these, knowing that these are the, Gibe- the descendants of the circumcision murdered. And we've got to read it very carefully because it's extraordinary. And the, and the descendants of the murdered by, with circumcision, they have a plan. It looks like the dumbest plan ever devised. But it works. So they really had a very low opinion of who they were trying to fool. And it's really a remarkable thing. And I'll have to repeat much of this for the absentees. I know that that are missing today so they can have what? 
a passing grade on the semester final. But don't fret. I'm not going to give them all the answers. I've already given you lots of answers that they're not going to have. So you'll be able to destroy them. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It might not have made any sense to you, but it will soon. And then you can lord it over them and go nanny, nanny, foo-foo. I am more holy than you. Notice how that rhymes. Here we go. Joshua 9. The Treaty with the Gibeonites. Open your textbook. Page 314. Here we go. A lot to read here. Might not read it all. Maybe I will. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan... Now, remember, they had just wiped out the mighty king of Ai. They had just renewed the covenant and they read the scriptures aloud. I mean, Joshua did. How many Jews do I have sitting in there between those mountains that he's talking to? I have almost a million at least. This is the second generation. How do you speak to a million people? He puts them between two mountains. He has them in a valley. And obviously there's a supernatural element to it. But this is also after the fall of Jericho, which was a incredibly fortified encampment, okay, or city. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and in the lowlands and all, and all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, who is who? Those are the Gibeonites. Those are the descendants of the ones that were murdered with circumcision in Genesis 34, the Dinah incident. I can't repeat that enough because I've got to pound that in. And the Jebusite heard about it. Heard what? Obviously, we got a meeting here, don't we? They heard something. What did they hear? You really got three choices. Actually, four. All of the above. Did they hear about Jericho? Did they hear about the, the king that was the powerful king that was easily taken? Did they hear about the reading of the Pentateuch? And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So we have a meeting where everybody gets together and says, listen, the massive army coming towards us. We've got to deal with this army. Let's get together. They look pretty uh, tough. They're doing some extraordinary things, and we can't take them one at a time. They'll pick us off one by one. What we have to do as a group is get together and deal with this. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, or Ai, so the Gibeonites went, uh-oh, he took out Jericho. How do you take out Jericho, by the way? Extra credit. How do you take him out? Yeah, he walks around. That's not that big a deal. Lots of people walk around. He had something really powerful. And he had, that's right, he had trumpets. That's what it's all about. The more trumpets, the better. You'd think I'd be able to get that done around here, but haven't been able to do it yet. So I'm, what am I doing to the congregation? What am I filling it with? That's right, trumpet players. I'm making a little cabal. Eventually, we'll have a vote and we'll seize control. 
That's happening. I'm planning, planning. That's promise. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho, they worked craftily. Okay, they got to have a plan because listen, we got trouble here if we don't take out, or if we don't deal with this army that's coming. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. This is their plan. I want you to read, as I'm reading this, I want you to look at it and think to yourself, this is the best they can do. What are they thinking? By the way, it's very smart. Pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Far country. And therefore, make a covenant of peace with us. Don't kill us. Kill them. Be nice to us. Then the men of Israel said to the Gibeonites, Hivites, it'll even say in your Bible, Perhaps you are lying to me. We will not sign the papers. Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Hezbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country, think about what they're saying, everybody in our country, all our leaders, spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. What are they saying with that, by the way? We want, we're going to place ourselves in servitude to you. We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Don't kill us. We will put ourselves in bondage, if you will, if you don't kill us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. How long does it take bread to dry to be dry and moldy at a hundred degree temperature? Who's lived in Texas? Okay, you put bread out. I lived in Hawaii, pretended to go to school. That, by the way, is really the case because have you ever been to Hawaii and, and you're 20 years old? The chances of you attending class are nil. Absolute nil. That's the way it was for me. Anyway, in Hawaii, at 100 degrees, which isn't very often, if you put a piece of bread out five minutes later, it's what? That's right, covered with ants and being carried off. That's the way it is. So how long does it take a piece of bread in the Middle East in that heat to become dry and moldy? And that's proof, by the way, that we came from a long, how far away would they come before the bread's moldy? Okay, where am I? 
But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Is this going to work on anybody? you got to be kidding. I've seen better. I mean, I've seen teenage boys do better than this. And that's the absolute bottom of excuse making. And I taught school, as you know, for a long time. And I heard it all. Not as much as Troy or Bill, but I heard it all. My favorite was, where are you? Because I did P.E. Where are your, uh, where's your, we used to have to dress out. I don't know. Do you still have to dress out for P.E.? Junior high and high school? It was a white t-shirt with your name on it and white shorts. That's what you had to have. And, um, and so we could all, we'd know your name. And I knew everybody's name from the very first day because I had the same name for all of them. <laughs> and that made it pretty easy. You, you can imagine what their names were. <laughs> I'll never forget Bill Wiltrout. I can't tell the story, but come up afterwards and I'll tell you the story about Bill Wiltrout. He taught me how to do all the, most of this stuff, him and Larry Whitmore, but uh, Bill Wiltrout told me. Said, so this is what I always do, and he called us all the same name, and then one kid didn't like that name. And so what he did is he said, you don't like being called that, do you? kid said, no, I don't. So he said, okay. So he'd say, all you, that would be us, and he'd call us that name, and Fred. And that's where we went through the whole school year. We were all called that name, and he was called Fred. He wanted very badly to be called the same name as the rest of us, really fast. It was an interesting little technique. It won't work today, because today every kid comes to school with what? That's right, an attorney. That's not, that doesn't work. Back in my day, they beat us to death. They had boxing class. Then you did it. You taught boxing class. They had a game called Cowboys and Indians. I'm losing track here, aren't I? They tied us around. They, we had a rope. We'd tie ourselves up with a rope and haul each other out of the room. And, oh, it was unbelievable. There were a few, maybe eight or nine of us survived that PE class. Yeah, if you didn't hit them in the face, they weren't out when I was teaching PE. Man, if they're, you're told, hey, you're out because your T-shirt's covered with blood. That's how it worked. Those were the days. Walked uphill in the snow and the cold both directions. Bears. Dark. Carrying your sister. Okay. i got to hurry. The peach is getting cold. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Ah, what? Obviously, they bought this story, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So these guys come with this cockamamie story about old moldy bread. And we came from a long way away, made peace with us, and Israel buys it, and then they take the stuff. Somehow the Gibeonites knew it would happen. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard, oh, how, how difficult this was to find out, that the Gibeonites their neighbor, were their neighbors who dwelt with them. Notice that after three days, 
Then the children of Israel journey and came to the to their cities on the third day. Now, the cities were Gibeon, Sherpira, Biroth and Kirjah. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all of the congregation complained against the rulers. So you get the story now. People come, they pretend that they're from a far country. You can't kill us. Let's make peace. That raises a bunch of obvious questions. Israel goes for the peace deal, takes their provisions. Then they find out that they're only three days march away. They march over there after three days. They find out after three days. Then they march there on and get there on three days. And they want to attack and kill them all. But the... Uh, the rulers say to the people, you can't kill them. Can't kill them because we made peace. We made a covenant. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. For this we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers, which makes them what? That's right, Carpenters. That's a curse, all right, baby. Well, let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying? Now, that's the key question to all of this. Why did they deceive them? Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to kill all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very, very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. So do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hands of the children of Israel, so they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. In other words, what did he do? He put them in the ministry. There's another curse. It's only funny to people that know what I do. In the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, I want you to go quickly over here. I'm going to and how the uh, let's see. uh, Now, it came to pass the king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had taken Jericho and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. And they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater Then Ai and Jericho, if you will, I'm adding Jericho, and all its men were mighty. So this isn't, this isn't Spinard or Muldoon here that gives up. This is a heavily fortified, mighty city. So we gotta ask a whole bunch of obvious questions now. For the sake of time, uh, I want those of you who have not dealt with this, you've got to go back and read Joshua 4, and you've got to go all the way to Joshua 10 in order to keep up with this, because there's a lot of key pieces that are in there. 
But remember, very, very important from question 12 from the mid-quarter exam, the Gibeonites or the Hivites, this is Act 2, as I said, uh, if you will. These are the ones that will be slain again by Saul. That will be Act 3. Act 1, of course, is Genesis 34 again. So that you know that this is where we are after the Dinah incident. We're moving our way through this story that is the Gibeonites. And as an aside, it should be noted, as I said, that uh, Joshua assigned the great city of Gibeon and all its mighty men to the Levitical side, to the Levites. He made them Levites, essentially. He assimilated them into the priesthood. They worked in the temple. The Gibeonites were placed into the priesthood, and Nehemiah, as I said, relied on them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But that's getting far ahead. That's Act 4. We're going to stick to the obvious questions. Okay? The kings got together and said, we've got to fight. And they got everybody together. Obvious Gibeon's going to be there because Gibeon could probably be the most powerful city left. We've got to fight. The king of Ai was hanged on a tree, and his corpse was cut down finally and cast into the entrance of the city, and a big heap of stones was placed over him, and it says it's still there to this day, the time of Joshua. And that clearly, by the way, is what kind of typology? Right off the bat, I hang a guy on a tree, I cut him down, I throw him into the gates of the city, and I heap a bunch of stones over him as a monument to him. What is that typology? That's Antichrist typology. Jericho fell. Seven days of trumpets. Man, who could have lived through that? That should have killed everybody. But seven days of trumpets, and then at the very end, okay, they blow the trumpets and they shout something and the walls fall down. What's the obvious question? What did they say? What's your choices? I'll give you one. They said the ineffable. They shouted the unpronounceable name of God. Well, if it's unpronounceable, well, how did they shout it? Well, that's a wonderful story that comes later. That's a choice. And then Joshua gathered the entire nation of Israel and he read them the words of Moses, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible of the Old Testament. Joshua read it aloud. Now, how long did that take? If I sat down with you and started reading, how long would it take me to read the first five books of the Bible? How long? Six, seven hours, maybe? And there's a million of you, at least. What do we got to do? Half the time, somebody's going to get coffee. And they get up, and we have to stop and wait. And they come back. But it's going to take a long time. And they all heard it. Imagine that. And if they heard it, who do you think else is in there listening to that? How many spies do you think have infiltrated, pretended they belonged there? They were filled with spies. Had to be. It's the first thing you do if you're being attacked is you infiltrate, try to learn as much information as you can, and you bring them back out. So I, I try to imagine that... All these cities had their own little spies in there, and they're all around Jericho. They're watching Jericho fall, the city collapse, except for Rahab. And like I said, how's that for a weapon? I blow a trumpet, we all shout something, and walls fall down. That's pretty impressive. I'm not going to stop that much. I'm able to use sound waves to do something destructive. Very powerful king of Ai is hanging from a tree, and Joshua, as I said, reads his book. 
Anyway, a meeting's called. An invading army is coming. Everybody must join together to fight against Israel. But not the Gibeonites, not the Hivites. They went to the meeting. They heard, but they decided to do something else. We're the most powerful city. We're not going to fight. We're going to come up with a plan and fool these people because these people are obviously what? Dumb as a box of rocks. I'm going to put on a bunch of old clothes. I'm going to have a bunch of old food. And I'm going to fool them into thinking I don't even live here. They're going to give me a peace treaty. And I got it now. And you can't, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. You can't attack because I have a treaty. That's going to work. How did they know that was going to work? How did they know that if you write a treaty and you swear to the Lord God of Israel, how do you know they ain't going to kill you? How did this go for them first time they tried this? It seems ridiculous on its face. But they knew it was going to work. How did they know? And by the way, the obvious question comes out of verse 7. They claim to be servants. They claim to be from a far way away. They obviously are, are they, did, they didn't get that by anybody. If you are far way away, you don't even need protection. How come? Because you got Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 says, and they, read, they heard Deuteronomy 7 being read, didn't they? Deuteronomy 7 says, kill everybody that's in the land. What's Deuteronomy 20 say? It says, you don't have to kill people that are outside the land. If you come from a very, very far country, you're not into the promised land, you don't need a covenant. Unless you intend to attack. The Gibeonites obviously knew the difference between Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 21. They had really good stenographers in that, in that reading. They pretended to be a Deuteronomy 21 ambassador. And they had old sacks, they had old wine, they had old patched sandals, they had old garments, they had old bread. That's what they said. Look at that again. Wine, sandals, garments, and bread. And then this mysterious verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Why did the men of Israel take rotten bread, sour wine, pour up sandals, dirty garments? Because everything is essentially ruined, right? Because that's what they said in verse 13. All our stuff is ruined. That's proof that we came from a long way away. Israel says, oh yeah, we want that. Give me that. That make any sense to you? That's what it says. And it makes wonderful sense, by the way. In any event, this deception was successful. The Gibeonites got their covenant, and that just leads to the real question, the obvious question. What possessed them? What made the Gibeonites believe that Israel would do something? What made them think that they would have to honor this covenant? They got it deceptively, even though it was a stupid or it seems on its face stupid. It really isn't very clever. We'll have to figure out why next week. But how is it that they knew that the Israelites would honor the covenants? And like I said, how did this work out for them before? They had uh, circumcision and the Dinah incident, right? They got murdered over that. What made them think that this would work? Why didn't they get murdered again? Why did they think this would be different? A covenant achieved through deception. There's great irony here, by the way, because they're deceiving the ones that they're, the descendants are deceiving the deceivers are the descendants of the deceivers. So I have deceiving the deceivers going on. They turn about. But everybody knew that the covenant, if it's signed, would be honored. 
Everybody knew it. Both sides knew it. And it was. And all that matters is the oath. It's not how the oath is gotten. That's not the issue. Get the oath. If you get the oath, you're going to be what? You're going to be spared what? You're going to be spared the judgment of God. You're going to be saved. Wrath will come upon Israel if they harm the Gibeonites. So what doctrine is this? And I'll read two verses here. So they answered Joshua. I'm sorry. Now, therefore, Joshua says to them, you are cursed and none of you shall be free from being slaves. Are they really cursed? Really? I get to live. I work in the altar in the temple. They became intricately important, extremely valuable to the nation of Israel. They were nothing. They were not cursed at all. What a curse. We should be so lucky. Verse 25. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. Consider that for a moment. These are the descendants of the ones who were murdered by the ones who are giving them the covenant. Now, why would they believe them? But they knew they could. They knew it would work. And it did. So there's your introduction into Joshua 9. Next week, we will go over it in more detail and clean it all up. And you will then be an expert on Act 2. Okay. Rise and be dismissed. Move the uh, curtain away so you can see Nate.